Hello, hello, Kristen here. Just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the podcast name change. If you hear any old terminology, that's why. Thank you for listening. Hello, notable women. I'm excited to be back with you again. This is another COVID-19 focused episode. I am interviewing Karen Hillard in this episode. Karen is a dear friend from when I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, over a decade ago. Time really, really does fly. But so Karen is a public health communication expert, and she and I have been talking a lot about COVID-19 since it first came out in the news, asking her what she thought about it, what was she doing, what what was her family doing. And so now that it has become the public health emergency that she feared, I wanted to have her on the show to talk to her specifically about what does it mean. I'm in New York City. We are having a serious outbreak here. She is in Georgia, outside Atlanta, in a rural suburban area. And so we talk about what the numbers look like for both of us. So you can listen from anywhere in the world and be in a major metropolitan area like myself or in a much smaller community like her and understand what it means for you. Great, great episode. I hope that you enjoy it very much. It's full of great information, and I'll catch you on the flip side. My guest today is Karen Hillard, and why is she here today talking to us about COVID-19 and the public health response? Well, because Karen is a PhD, a behavioral scientist, and a communication strategist who trains and advises state, federal, and global clients on both routine and crisis communication. Beginning in 2006, she was a part of a CDC-funded team that spent three years training public health communicators how to implement the federal pandemic preparedness and response plan. She has written extensively about social distancing and other government directives during a pandemic. Please join me in welcoming Karen. Karen, thank you so much for being here. I am delighted to be talking with you. Sorry that we're talking about this topic, but, um, but you know... Uh, it's where we all are right now. Yes, absolutely. Strange, strange, strange times. Never, never expected this. I expect a lot of strange things. And I know this is your area of expertise. So you're like, ah, this is what we prep for. And I prep for a lot of things, but I've never prepped for this. So I I guess my first question is, so I'm here in New York City, which is, you know, uh, a hot spot, I guess uh, they would say, and you're in Georgia now. So tell me a little bit, what is it like there for y'all? Well, we are, I'll I'll start with my my family and my neighborhood first, and then kind of expand. Um, My family has been in um, in isolation for nine days now, totally. Um, and, you know, staying, staying socially distanced from people, we were able to, um, several weeks ago, stock up on groceries and other necessities. And, um, and so nine days ago was the last time that my, uh, my husband had to go to work and one of my kids had to, to be, uh, in school so that's that's what we're doing. A lot of our neighbors, a lot of my friends are also doing the same thing as I'm sure many of the no, the other notable women are doing right now. But there are a lot of folks in the community here who don't who don't seem to quite have gotten the memo yet. Um, I was uh, out for a little drive about yesterday, not getting out of my car, going in anywhere, just really, um, really out for about 10 or 15 minutes to, um, to see what was happening in the community. Parking lots at a number of the big box retailers in my area were jam-packed like a normal Saturday. Um, clearly, a lot of people not too concerned about social distancing and not paying attention to what we're hearing, not not just on a national level, but on a local level. Um, we have, um, I live uh, about an hour and a half outside of Atlanta in Georgia. So my, uh, my community is partly rural, partly suburban. And we have two hospitals that serve about 650,000 people total in um, in a combination of rural and suburban counties. They're the only hospitals for those 650,000 people. 
and we have fewer than 50 ICU beds between the two hospitals. You know, even a small rate of infection here would quickly overwhelm the health system. And we have a lot of people who don't really seem to be thinking about that. Wow, only 50. That's um, mind boggling, of, of course. And, uh, you know, probably something I would have never thought about in my entire life until right now. But it is very, very astounding to think about how many, how, again, nothing I've ever thought about before, but how many uh, hospitals there are in the country, where are they located? How many patients can they serve? How many patients are they normally serving right. without anything like this happening? And then, you know, how many ICU beds, how many ventilators? Uh, and certainly we're already seeing in the United States that uh, PPE is in uh, which personal protective equipment is already in short supply and that people are already going without. So amazing to think about in your tiny community how few ICU beds there already are just to begin with because of how small the area is. Right, right. And, you know, doing a little quick back of the cocktail napkin kind of math, um, you know, if you've got what we're seeing worldwide is that about 20% of the people with the virus, you know, about 80% of people are going to be okay. About 20% of the people with the virus are going to have complications severe enough to seek hospitalization. And many, many of those people will need to, to be confined to ICU. They'll be in critical care. They'll need ventilators. So let's say if 20% of the people in this area who get sick need that kind of care, you know, 50 ICU beds is 20% of 300. So when we get more than 300 cases in this, in this uh, multi-county region that, that serves 650,000 people total, so 300 cases is something that that, that population will quickly get to we're going to start having a problem. And you're exactly right. We're already low on PPE. Gloves and masks um, are already in short supply. We've already asked um, some of the local places that might have those kinds of of, um, resources to donate them. So like, for example, we have a veterinary school here um, that has donated some of its equipment, some of its, you know, not only masks and gloves, but other, um, other equipment that might be needed in the case of an influx into the hospitals, that stuff is getting donated to the local hospitals and they're still in short supply. That is, it's such a good explanation right there that you gave us about if if nationwide or worldwide, 80% of the people who get it will be okay, 20% will need to be hospitalized. And you said that, you know, for your area, with those 50 ICU beds, you can have 300 cases, and then you're all you're tapped out. You're already you're done. You're you've got people in the hallways uh, at just 300 cases, and so I think it's so great to hear that because uh, an episode I did as a part of the social distancing summit, and then released as a podcast yesterday with Amy Simpkins, we talked about the the data behind this and why if you have a case or three cases in your area, you should be concerned because of this exponential growth. So it's really uh, nice, nice. I, I, it's not good, but it's a good way for your brain to wrap around it. What does that then mean? What does that exponential growth mean? Well, it means in your area, 300 cases will will tap you out of ICU bed. That's as that's if those ICU beds aren't already in use because um, you know a heart attack victim needs it or a car accident victim needs it or whatever. Um, so you know, I mean, I, I don't think any hospital around the country has all of its ICU beds just sitting there waiting for people at any given time. They're already you know at least partially filled with patients now, just you know because emergencies happen and people get sick we're going to be confronted very soon with a situation where we have to decide, do those people, the heart attack folks, the, the emergency appendectomies, you know, the, the people who've just been in a car accident, do they get those beds or does somebody else get those beds? And what do we do when we, when we run out of the beds? What kind of treatment are people going to receive and how suboptimal might it be. And that's another excellent point, something I think that people haven't wrapped their heads around, which is that there are so many ICU beds in each area nationwide. Those beds are often already occupied. I, I forget what percentage I heard about it, but clearly they're occupied and there are only some open. And that I think that people, again, the understanding of 
New York City has a certain number of hospitals and a certain number of beds, and we have more people, and we'll have more cases, but your your area, like yours, Karen, or our listeners' area, who might be living in a smaller area, really understanding what a small number of cases will do to your hospital system, I think that's a really great way for someone to wrap their brain around, why does it matter to me? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and what um, the other thing that we're seeing a lot of here, which is, you know, again, it's it's interesting to contemplate whether this is people's lack of understanding of exponential growth of of transmission, whether it's their lack of understanding of what we were just talking about, the, the implications, not just for people who come down with the virus, but for anybody else with any kind of other medical issue that happens or you know if if these are people who are just in denial because of of inaccurate or even you know I would venture to say dishonest messaging that they have heard from people in authority people uh, people in the media um, you know who have been downplaying this for a long time so it's interesting to see but I was about to say that we're you know it's not only like the stores that are jam packed here. Um, people are, are, you know, some of my friends who are social distancing are kind of horrified and are posting pictures on what's happening in their own neighborhoods of people having block parties where lots of families are coming together to cook out and um, drink beers and like have all the kids play together, uh, which is exactly what families should not be doing in this circumstance. I mean, it's yeah, you know, is it difficult to keep your your tiny humans in the house and um, or, you know, in your yard, confined to your yard and not, you know, running next door or across the street to play with the neighbors? Absolutely. Nobody's saying that that's easy. Nobody's saying that kids aren't going to be having tantrums and not really being able to understand uh, about that. But, you know, your number one job as a parent is to uh, to protect your kids and your number two job is is to raise your children to think about other people and to um to be part you know be part of a a civilized society and letting people um you know and, and people who continue to not have any regard for what is happening right now are failing at both of those things Oh, snap. I, I think that's a very good way to say it. You know, uh, I was arguing, as I'm sure lots of people are in uh, my mom's group uh, with a mom. And she said, someone, we have this anonymous post thing where you can ask some a question anonymously if you know you're going to get, you know, backlash or you don't want people to know who you are. And so someone said, you know, can we have playdates? And so literally hundreds of people are saying, no, you can't have a playdate. And then, of course, this one mother says, yeah, I'm going to keep having playdates and we're going to have Playdates with a couple families, and and so I commented on her post, and I said, you know, the way I think about this, and this might be the, the most inappropriate things I've ever said on this podcast, which is, you know, I like to think about it like sex. Every family that you go and hang out with, social distancing wise, is just like sex in that you know what precautions you're taking, but you don't know what precautions they're taking, and how many other families they're hanging out with, and so every time you're interacting with other people at this point, you're interacting with every other person that they've interacted with. And so if somebody is willing to, you know, play date with you or have a block party with you, uh, they're doing it with other people too. And now you're exposed to all of those other people that they've interacted with. Exactly. And it's funny because I've, I've actually used that sexual behavior metaphor in explaining this with to people. I always hasten to say, not that not the coronavirus is transmitted sexually, you know, I'm, I'm sure that all of your listeners know that, but you know, I don't want anybody to get confused because we're using that metaphor, but it's the idea of it like of of exposing yourself to another person's careless behavior and lack of protection you know you wouldn't you wouldn't do that sexually so why are you doing it you know now in an, a way that other and you know other kinds of diseases can be transmitted as well so it's it is i think it's a really apt you know analogy of of what is happening now and i uh, i don't know you know, I don't know why that's hard for people to to wrap their minds around. Now, I do want to digress and say that, you know, there are absolutely situations out there I know where parents may, where they need some outside interaction in order to have the support that they need. Um, you know, I can think of 
I was actually just having a conversation online yesterday with a local parent I know who is the who's a single mom who has two special needs kids at home um, who have a very severe autism spectrum disorder. I mean, they're really not not high functioning at all. Somebody who's in a situation like that is under a lot of stress day to day in just normal life. And now that she's home and has no respite care, you know, for those for those boys, I am sure that there's a lot of pressure. Sure that that is the case for a lot of single parents. A lot of people who are parents who are medical professionals and who are essential right now to fighting this, nurses, doctors, other other professionals in healthcare, you know, they need they they need somewhere safe for their children to be during the day or during the night, whatever their shift is. And so, you know, certainly in cases like that, I think it might make sense for a couple of families to partner together and to say, you know, kind of back to the the sexual metaphor for a minute. Um, you know, we're going to be monogamous, you know, like we're going to be like each other's buddies in this situation. <laughs> like I will watch your child when, when you need respite and you will watch my child, but we're not, we're not going to be with anybody else during this time. And we're going to be, we're going to be pandemic buddies together. And so, you know, I mean, there are ways to work around this. And, and I think that that could be true, you know, for a lot of, a lot of families situations where they need that kind of break. And there's a way to do it without exposing yourself to a whole bunch of people in the community. That's an excellent point. It could be two or three families, but it's just that you're you're having the conversation with each other and saying, you know, we're doing this so that we can survive. We're not doing this because we're bored at home and, you know, we just need to get out. And certainly I, I, I've said this on social media a couple times, but my son so irritated with this situation. You know, he's four doesn't understand what's going on. I think the angriest he's been is when we we went to his school and they gave us all the stuff from his cubby and his uh, homework and stuff like that. You know, New York City schools are closed until at least April 21st and probably, you know, I would imagine beyond that. But when he saw his cubby stuff, he was like, oh no, mom, this does not belong here. This belongs at school. (laughs) What is happening? He was, uh, he was very, very irritated. And so he doesn't know what's going on. So we're doing all sorts of things. For some reason, he's decided that Santa Claus is coming. So we are just leaning into that and we're reading Christmas books. We're watching Christmas movies. We're doing all sorts of stuff. You know, we hung Christmas lights up. So it's just whatever it takes to get through this and, and be responsible. And I think the other thing is that people you know have uh, illnesses that you can't see. So maybe you you know some people who have cancer or something that is causing them to be at higher risk, but there are probably lots of people you know that are at higher risk that you have no idea of, that they might have asthma or some sort of lung condition or some sort of autoimmune disease. And so I think that that's uh, really important to note as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, thing is that there's so little really that we need to leave our homes for when we're talking about a few weeks of of getting through this. And especially when we have so many electronic means of staying connected to people. I, I do think that there's a real inequity out there in terms of the the people who maybe know how to avail themselves of all of those things. I mean, yeah, you know, everybody's got a smartphone and, you know, knows how to text and email. But, you know, there I think there is a a bit of a digital divide still when it comes to to other means of staying in touch with people. And so, you know, one thing that that I think is really helpful right now is just trying to to help people make those connections. I mean, I had a a phone conversation a couple of days ago with uh, or sorry, I shouldn't say a phone conversation because the point of my story here is really to say that I had a FaceTime conversation with with a couple of my longtime, you know, closest friends we we text all the time normally and we talk on the phone you know fairly frequently normally but i can't tell you how great it was to do a facetime conversation which we don't normally do most of the time but because of that feeling of connection that was that was you know much more much more tangible when i could see their faces than when it's just a disembodied voice on the phone you know and so you know, most people have that capability. They just may not be as familiar with the technology. And I think one of the things that those of us who, you know, who understand that, who use those those technologies, those platforms all the time can do is to to help, you know, share some of that knowledge and 
show people, you know, how it works, because I think that will like increasing people's sense of community will really increase their well-being and enable them to to stay put for longer than maybe they think is possible right now. I think that's a really good point. And certainly you and I use these tools to talk all the time. You know, I run obviously the Society of Notable Women where we have conversations uh, via Zoom meetings. We have, I think, a great sense of community in the group where people can come in on video and chat and things like that. And so for me, it's not a stretch to be able to have great conversations and great connection with people digitally, but I absolutely know people who are flabbergasted by the idea. So I think that you're right. It's It would be great for those of us that are used to it, that know how to use the tools to help others create community in these times, which is why, you know, I did host the social distancing summit so that people could have something to do that sort of first week mm-hmm. of craziness. So now what are you, as a public health communication expert, what are the things that you're trying to do in your area to raise awareness around this? Well, um, so, so several things. I mean, you know, first of all, I'm I'm trying to put out as much clean language guidance and just thinking about this as I can, you know, in my own social network. Um, so that's something I've been doing for, you know, a few weeks now, as people have been asking me, you know, first when, when this was first kind of on people's radar screens, like, what are you doing and whatever. And you know, my, my guidance has evolved as our information has evolved, but, you know, I've been trying to be really out there with some of, some of that also helping organizations that may be trying to communicate right now with, you know, what, what do they need to be telling people? What's this, what, what is, you know, a simple structure for good communication message, uh, a good emergency or, or a crisis communication message right now. And I'll come back to that in a second and can share that with, with any listeners here. But so that's, you know, like, how do we talk about this? Um, you know, what are the important things to think about? On more of a community level, I'm actually working on a couple of fronts to, to try to push our county and municipal governments to do more because there is a, a real lack of guidance and clarity and policy coming from both the federal and the state level, at least in my state. And so communities are really kind of on their own for what to do. As an example, our neighboring county enacted a few days ago a 24-7, people are calling it a curfew or a lockdown. It's really not as, as stringent as that. But it was some very specific guidance that could be enforceable. And I'm going to come back to that in a second, because I think that this is, you know, a a really important question is how all of this impacts our civil liberties. But they they came up with some guidance about, you know, only making trips to, you know, essential services like groceries and pharmacies, limiting, uh, asking businesses to limit the number of people uh, allowed in grocery stores and pharmacies at any one time and to take other measures to, you know, disinfect things, that kind of thing. Asking restaurants to go to a delivery and takeout mode only. And, and a number of other steps. I mean, you know, even uh, there, there's a rule that if 10 people or more are congregating, they can be dispersed. Now, none of that is really being enforced in any kind of forceful way. And that was quite important to that county um, that it not turn, you know, that it wasn't going to become a police state because of this. But it does do a couple of things. First, it sets the tone and and articulates clearly what behaviors people should be following. So there's no question. There's no. It's not up to people to decide for themselves. There's some clear guidance. But secondly, it does allow them, if a dangerous situation is happening, to 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 be able to disperse people and to say, look, you know, I don't want to I don't want to arrest anybody here, but I will if I need to, and hopefully people will listen. So you know that. I think that that clear guidance and and the you know the the really clear recommendations, especially to businesses, on what they should be doing right now is important. My own county hasn't enacted anything quite like that. Did get them to close public parks and playgrounds a couple of days ago, but uh, and and to suspend county meetings, public meetings, like where people would gather in a town hall format. But they haven't done they haven't taken as many other actions as they could. So we're asking them to do that. We actually organized 
a group of doctors and nurses to sign a letter to the county government yesterday, pleading with them to take more stringent measures to increase social distancing. So we'll see where that goes. I was actually on a call with some community leaders a couple of hours ago talking about some other steps we think the county could take, for example, to to set up a resilience fund that would be like, you know, kind of almost like a giant GoFundMe that would pull some county money in, but would also seek some private donations, maybe maybe even setting up some kind of a match situation so that we would have a fund to give emergency cash relief to families that need it. We're hearing from some families that they are worried about being evicted, not being able to make their rent. I'm sure that a lot of small businesses are in the same situation. So we're asking the county to halt as much as possible the enforcement of any evictions and to to make people aware that that's happening so that people don't have to you know lay in bed awake wondering if their family's going to have a roof over their heads in a couple of weeks. Um, so some measures like that. And there's a there's a longer list, you know, as well. But we're we're trying to really push some of this from a grassroots point of view. There's there's some resistance in the place that I live to government being too big and too proactive. But I think there's also a real lack of any kind of guidance coming from anybody. So these guys are not just kind of resistant in principle to this. They haven't, nobody has even suggested some of these ideas to them. And so we're trying to trying to get this in front of them and get them to take some action. But anyway, I'm sorry, I, this was, that was a really long uh, stretch of things. So I should probably pause for a second, like get a word in edgewise to come back to any of the things I just said. Well, that's amazing. I was taking copious notes so that I can include them in the show notes about things that you're personally doing, which I think is a great list. Plain language guidance on your own social, helping organizations with their messaging, working on the community level, the doctors and nurses letter to increase social distancing, the resilience fund, which is such a great idea, and then asking county to halt evictions, which I think is in some ways it's such a no-brainer. I'm surprised that we haven't seen it across the country with uh, you know more popularity, but people people in the United States, the majority of citizens live paycheck to paycheck and can't handle one you know a thousand dollar surprise expense. Of course, if they lose their jobs in an instant, uh, it's going to be horrible. So I'm glad that you're you're pushing that. I think that that's really great. Well, and you know, there are some steps I think that that I hope that we will see on a state or national level as well because, you know, evictions are a real, you know, that's a real problem and a real worry for people, but when we look at what causes more bankruptcies, you know, overall or what what really can be the tipping point for a lot of families, a much greater problem actually than than not being able to pay your rent is not being able to make your car payment and and getting your car repossessed. And, you know, cars are really the lifeline for a lot of people to get to work, to get to school, to get to healthcare, that kind of thing, especially, you know, in a place like the one where I live, where there's not a lot of public transportation that can be an alternative for folks. And so, you know, we need to we need to see, hopefully on a federal level, some relief asking credit agencies, for example, to, um, to you know, uh, extend car payment uh, deadlines or to waive payments over the next couple of months. That's, you know, one example. Um, there, are, there are others, of course, any kind of, any kind of credit situation that people are in uh, is going to be really precarious right now. And we, we need not just companies stepping up some of them have, and that's fantastic, but we need some real incentives and some real teeth behind that from governmental authorities. So now while you were talking, you said you wanted to come back to the enforceable restrictions and civil liberties. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that that this is a really, this is a really precarious time in many ways for civil liberties. Let me say that you know, I'm I'm not on the extreme civil libertarian end of things that would say that you should be able to do whatever you want in any circumstance. I think that there are always some limits when one person's rights run up against another person's rights. So really, it's a constant balancing act. 
in this case, you know, what we are asking people to do is to give up some of their rights to congregate in a store, for example, or to congregate in a restaurant or to congregate at their house of worship for a period of time is best when those can be voluntary asks for people and people will listen. And I think that we are seeing that many people are, but at the same time, there may be laggards in the group who need some kind of mandate to force them into to some of those behaviors that are for the good of society. And so, you know, these the idea of these curfews or, you know, some cities are calling them lockdowns or whatever, that's that's where those come in. You know, it's to force the the small percentage of people who are endangering others not to do it. It's really no different than the laws that we have on the books against yelling fire in a crowded theater. Are you restricting somebody's right to free speech in that case? Well, yes, you are, but you are you are doing it because it protects an overwhelming number of people and it protects the greater good. Um, but of course, in all of these situations, I think we have to be really cautious about the fact that there are some bad characters out there, bad actors, you know, in our government, in our civil society that would, I'm sorry about this background noise. It's my dog scratching, if you can hear that. Anyway, but there are there are bad actors out there who would take advantage of a situation in which civil liberties are, are being somewhat restricted or whether voluntarily or not to say, yeah, let's, uh, let's, take away more rights and maybe let's not restore those rights when when this is over. And so I think we all have to be on our guard right now to ensure that any of these kinds of whether they be bans or recommendations or you know policies whatever you want to call them are temporary in nature that they are only as as restrictive as they need to be and that we not get too carried away with um, you know that we make sure that we are constantly doing that check and that balance to make sure that one person's rights are not being overly restricted in a way that that doesn't need to happen because we know from history that in many of the cases where fascist governments have arisen, it's been because of a national crisis that precipitated it and uh, and precipitated what should have been a short-term restriction of some rights uh, that just got extended and extended and then eventually became the, the norm. Yeah, that's how The Handmaid's Tale starts, right? Probably starts a lot of books and movies and real authoritarians as well. Right, right. I mean, yeah, you know, we have to think like, are we at the beginning of some kind of dystopian novel and is this how it starts? You know, and, and I mean, like, I'm only saying that like half in jest. Like we we need to be sure that this is not how some dystopia gets gets started. There are, you know, the, the really the easiest way to guard all of our rights is for people to voluntarily do these things so that the laws don't actually have to be on the books. I mean, that's the irony, right? Some of the people that are out there, like, you know, going, it's my God-given right to be, you know, crowded into Walmart with thousands of other people right now. Don't, you can't restrict my rights are actually the ones who will force those rights to be restricted. That's an excellent, excellent point. So I have a couple of other questions for you, but I want to bring you back to one of the things that you said you would come back to, which is you said that you would come back to this idea of, of how you could talk about this, uh, your messaging around uh, being a business, and certainly a lot of notable women either uh, run their own businesses or they're heads of departments or organizations. So what sort of tips or advice would you have for them right now? So let me just say that I have spent a lot of years of my career training people in emergency and crisis risk communication. And one of the guides that I use in that process, one of the, the evidence-based, it's proven through case studies, it's proven through research, is the, the guidance that comes actually from the CDC on how to communicate in, in a crisis. I'm a certified trainer in that, and there's a really simple formula that we teach people that's, that's so easy and works so well in so many circumstances, and it works perfectly right now for a lot of organizations, and it's five steps. If you follow this, no matter what it is you're trying to communicate, you will tend to get it right. So what are the five steps? Step number one 
is you always begin any communication with some empathy by acknowledging the, the feelings that people are having right now, not trying to dismiss those feelings. So, you know, starting by saying, you know, I know how worried and uncertain people are right now about what's happening, what to expect, you know, whatever you, you acknowledge people's feelings. If they're worried, if they're scared, if they're confused, you acknowledge that and act like a human being yourself because you're gonna you're gonna be a lot more relatable if people understand that you too are feeling feeling some of this confusion or worry and that you get it. So you begin with empathy. Step two is to be really clear about what you're saying. And uh, there are three parts to that clarity that can help. Tell people what you know, tell people what you don't know, and then tell people what you're doing to find out the things that you don't know or what you are doing, what you're doing in general, so that they know what's happening behind the scenes. When people don't hear anything and they don't know what an organization is doing, they tend to fill the gap in their head with the worst case information. Oh, I haven't heard anything, so my my employer must be planning to lay people off. I haven't heard anything, so X, Y, or Z. So you want to fill in that information, what you know, what you don't know, the things that you're you're uncertain about. Don't ever lie about it. Be really honest and what you're doing to find out. Step three is giving people something to do, giving them giving them some direction, because when people are worried and stressed it is very helpful to them to have some some clear actions that they can take. The thing is, though, that people have a wide variety of responses to a crisis, and there are going to be some people who really just want to do the minimum, and there are going to be other people who are worried and nervous and want to take every step they can. So if you frame it along that continuum, you should tell people the things that they must do, the things that they should do, and the things that they could do right now. And that gives people, you know, options. They feel good about it. On the must end of things, you're telling them the things that they have to do to stay safe. So right now, you know, if you're if you're the government, you want to tell people you must remain as isolated as you possibly can. You know, the shoulds might be things like you want to get plenty of, you know, plenty of exercise. You want to stay in contact with people socially. You want to do blah, blah, blah. You know, these are some things that you should should probably be doing right now to stay healthy and stay safe. You should not go to restaurants, you know, that sort of thing. And then the coulds are things that are options for people and that the most worried people or the most diligent people can 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 do, you know, so it could be everything from, you know, right now you could be donating uh, money to uh, an organization in your community that is sending meals to people who are food insecure. You could be, you know, taking uh, some further precaution or whatever. I mean, you know, so you're giving people a range of things. That's really the third step. The fourth step is to tell people when to expect their next update, when when you're going to get back to them with more information. And step five, you want to give them more resources, additional resources that they could go to. If you have questions, check this website. Or if you if you run into this problem or that problem, call this hotline. You want to refer them to some other place to get more information. So those are the five steps. Begin with empathy. Tell people what you know, what you don't know, what you're doing to find out. Step three, give people things to do, must, should, and could. Step four, tell them when to expect the next update. And step five, give them additional resources. If you do all of those things, that's a pretty complete message. And it will cut down on rumors. It will cut down on anxiety. And it will give people some constructive ways to channel their energy in a time of great uncertainty and stress. Awesome. That's fabulous tips. You know that I'm going to edit that section out and send it to some people that need it, that I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe and honestly. So I'm curious from your perspective, who do you think is doing a good job communicating? Hmm. I don't have a lot of high marks for anybody at the federal level at this point. So let me just say that. Um, I think that there are some real gaps there. Looking around, I feel like we've seen some of the clearest communication actually come from some companies that have um, have been very you know clear with their workers about 
what would happen, what to expect, you know, what steps to take. So, you know, we've seen some of that coming out of, of um, the corporate sector. We've also seen, I believe, some government governmental entities at the state and local level um, taking some, some good proactive steps and communicating them well. So some municipalities that were kind of out there in front of this, like San Francisco, like Boston, we are, you know, we're also seeing differences in in state communication. Uh, There's been a great uh, graphic that's been circulating on social media the last day or two comparing the state of Kentucky and the state of Tennessee, not just how they've communicated and the steps that they've taken, but their case counts. And we see that despite similar amounts of testing in the two states that that we are seeing the case counts escalating in Tennessee in a place where the communication and proactive steps have been somewhat lacking. I think when we get beyond all of this, we're going to be able to look back and, and draw a pretty clear line between effective communication and less severe consequences in some areas. But it's really too, you know, we can't. We can't know that until we can see it in hindsight in many locations. So, you know, unfortunately, it's a it's going to be something that evolves. We won't know until we're past this and then it will be too late and it'll be something that just goes into the uh, the annals of communication case studies and what to do and what not to do in a crisis like this. Yeah, uh, it's always kind of painful at that point, right? When you're like, we're living history right now. People are going to read about this. My son's grandchildren are going to say, why are you hoarding that hand sanitizer, Grandma? And I'll be like, you never know when you're going to need it. Even though I'm not not that old, I mean, I'm a lot older than you, but, you know, I'm not that old, old. My my parents were actually much older when I was born. Um, they My dad was 50 and my mom was 44. And they both grew up during the Great Depression. It was the formative experience of their life, even more so than World War II was for them. And the, you know, I grew up hearing a lot about that time. And and I feel like this is going to be one of, you know, very similar, a very similar period of history where this will be the formative experience of our of our kids. And you know, how we act as families and how we act as a country and as a world are going to impact them for many years to come, you know, on a very personal level. So it's time to time to get with the program for all these families that are still not taking taking this seriously. And it's time for our country to think about how it's going to be viewed in historical hindsight and to take the actions that will help us be viewed perhaps more like, you know, more like we view Roosevelt's interventions during the depression um, and not, I'm trying to think of a bad, a, a bad example. I don't know, you know, maybe not looking like how uh, Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette handled the lead up to the French revolution. So <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, we're, we're going to be judged. Got to gotta get it right or as close to right as we can. This is a little off topic, but I want to hear what your opinion on this. But from, uh, from your perspective as a public health communication expert, how do you feel about the whole testing debacle and what we do or don't know about who has the virus or what's your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think that this is actually the, the thing that is really the most personally upsetting to me right now because we you know we worked at just a little history if people aren't aware of it during the the George W Bush administration the country spent 7 billion dollars to develop a pandemic preparedness plan and to to really get a handle on how we would implement it how we would you know disseminate the supplies and the the you know the things that we needed to keep people healthy during a pandemic and how we would communicate about that and so one of the things that i held on to as a health communicator was that we had a very very good written drilled protocol in place i mean that we'd been practicing since 2005 or so in this country in which epidemiology, the detection of an epidemic, the, um, you know, the study of disease transmission, 
epidemiology would let us know when it was time to really sound the alarm and to take all the actions that we knew we would need to take in a global pandemic. Epidemiology failed because testing was not in place and testing failed. And we will never be able to recover from that failure at this point because what what we lost during that time was the ability to isolate and trace contacts, um, you know, to isolate people who were who were our early first cases of coronavirus in this country, and to trace their contacts and help them get isolated. Without testing in place, we weren't able to do that, and we were not able to to sound the alarm. And it was a critical missed step that we in which we will never know how many people actually have had the virus, and we we certainly missed some opportunity to take action when we we could have perhaps slowed the spread. I mean there was there's nothing there's nothing that the US could have done to keep this virus out and I think you know I mean I think that's important for people to realize that it would be here no matter what no matter who was in the white house but everything else there was an opportunity to to do better starting with having adequate testing in place. We have a strategic national stockpile of testing equipment and medical supplies that is updated frequently, that is in, that's on pallets, it's in these packs that are already stationed in some, I think it's like nine different places around the country and can be distributed to local communities supposedly within 24 hours. All of that could have been happening if we'd had testing in place and and started to, to sound the alarm. All of that could have gotten more testing in place by distributing it, and none of that happened. Thanks for laying that out that way. I think that's a really clear way for people to understand what about the testing matters. So now my, my last question for you is really like, what do you want people who are listening, what would you like them to do after listening to this podcast? Well, gosh, a lot of a lot of different things. First of all, basic safety, like kind of thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of thing, like from the very basics, keep yourself isolated. Think of yourself as being not just at risk of catching this, but as being infected right now. Act as though you have the disease and you don't want to spread it to other people outside your home. So that's kind of number one, like at a baseline sort of thing, please be doing that. But in terms of other things, you know, I think that that it is um, important to push for lots. I'm sorry about the background noise. That's my dog's collar shaking. (laughs) In terms of other steps that people can take, it's important for people to be pushing their um, their communities, their local and state governments to take more action not just to stop disease transmission, but to relieve people's financial stress and to try to make sure that families are able to get through this without being put on the street, basically, you know, for financial reasons, um, make sure that families are able to, to stay fed and stay healthy in a, in a mental and physical sense during this time. So that's really important. And, um, and you know, in each community, that's probably going to look a little bit different depending on what, what your local government is doing or not doing right now. But being being active and being vocal about that is important. And then, you know, the last thing is, I think, to consider the fact that elections really have consequences. And, you know, we as I as I said, no, no administration could have kept this disease out, but almost any administration could have done a better job of not squandering the last couple of months to prepare the, the country. And as I said earlier, families have one, one their, their number one job is to, you know, keep their kids safe. And number two, to, to raise their kids to be good people, <laughs> to, you know, to care about their community. Well, the number one job of the government is to keep uh, Americans safe. And in, in that, I think that our current government has has really failed to do all they could. And that's an important thing not to lose sight of. And I think we all need to be vigilant to make sure that that the pendulum doesn't swing too far now that uh, now that the the administration seems to be aware and uh, and actually doing something about the, the crisis that that they don't go too far in taking away rights and, and, you know, not balancing those rights, like I was talking about before, 
you know, doing the least restrictive thing and trying to get people on board with with compliance in a voluntary way, um, only resorting to to bans and and mandates when they have to, but making sure that those are temporary and that we resume to as normal um, a situation we can regarding our civil liberties, that we resume like a normal way of life as quickly as we can when this is over and uh, and don't see any of those restrictions extended. Thank you. That's an excellent warning. Now, I do think I would be completely remiss if I didn't say, can you tell us the name of the doggy that we can hear in the background? Well, you can hear two doggies, actually. Uh, one of them, the one who's shaking collar you can hear is Xanthi, and the one who's scratching at my office right now because she's like what there's a conference call and I'm obviously <laughs> so I have two little noisemakers there's the scratching again on the on the door and also I think they're they're telling me that it's kind of clouding up here and they think it might be dinner time but we're actually a couple hours away from that for them uh, my my cats if if my husband and I ever go into the kitchen at the same time they assume it's time to eat <laughs> no matter what you know is happening no matter what time of day yeah okay. Karen, thank you so much for bringing your expertise to us. This is amazing. Chock full of so much actionable advice for people to take for their own families and their own communities. So I thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to to hearing some of the other notable women who are going to be commenting on this and giving us all good advice. I think we, we really need it and we really need the community that you've created right now. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Karen Hillard, public health communication expert. I know that some of this is really hard to take, but I do feel like the more you know, knowledge is power, and it will help you make smart decisions. So if you weren't taking this seriously, I hope that this episode helps you to do so. If you know and love someone that needs to hear it, I do hope that you will share it with them. Now, I'll continue to share COVID-19 interviews over the coming days and weeks, as well as other conversations. And I'll make sure again that I let you know in the intro what is happening. And if you need something to do, if you need people to talk to, then come on over to the societyofnotablewomen.com. We're doing social distancing events. We're talking about the stress, the anxiety. We have different activities for kids. Whether you are color coding a schedule that you follow every day, or if you haven't changed out of your yoga pants, we are happy to have you no matter where you are. It's a lot, folks. It's a lot. I love you madly. I hope that you're taking care of yourself. I'm so proud of you for just putting one foot in front of the other right now. Take care and be well.